What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty TikTokin co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, drop the TikTok name, man. Dave Martinson. Shocking one. Easy. Easy peasy. Uh, <laughs> I bring that up because, Dave, you've been posting a couple of breakdowns on TikTok. Your thoughts on some releases, including Drake's Scary Hours 2 EP. Tell me about that. Yeah, just trying to find the album review TikTok is a strange place. <laughs> Usually no one speaks. They just listen to music and put text on the screen. So I was like, I can do that. Let me see what that <laughs> see what that's like. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, that that's always an interesting part of TikTok. I've seen um NFL draft TikTok now doing the same thing where they're like doing dances and pointing at who will make the picks to the text. It's a interesting strategy, but people seem to be all about it. It's all about the algorithm. You just got to get in the algorithm. Yes, you, got, you just got to get in once. But Scary Hours too. Uh, you know, we're, we're all waiting for uh, Lover Boy, Drake, to drop that new album, recovering from his most recent injury. But uh, Scary Hours too. three songs. Is there anything on here that compares to the first one? Yeah, I think that's kind of the thing, right? Calling it Scary Hours 2 naturally is going to uh, require callbacks to Scary Hours 1. Right. Several years old at this point, two-track joint featuring diplomatic community and, of course, God's Plan, mm -hmm. the second most streamed Drake song of all time, the 12th or 11th most streamed song on Spotify, period. Almost 2 billion streams total. Uh, truly a landmark Drake song that was released kind of nondescriptly again as part of a two-track EP leading up to his album Scorpion. And, you know, I think in, in the case of Scary Hours 2, similar tactic, palette cleanser, get everyone ready for the upcoming album, this case, Certified Lover Boy, coming soon. And yeah, that's what it is. But I think in this case, it's a little interesting because... Drake hasn't been like super far away like more life to scary hours was a longer wait than say to see slide and dark lane demo tapes and then laugh now cry later post the tapes is to scary hours too so it's not like Drake's been gone you know so yeah. I don't know if we need like the palate cleanser per se because laugh now cry later was a successful song for him I mean the, the guy just puts out songs like I, I don't, don't even think about Tootsie Slide at all it's like that is just a, a pure like zeitgeist trying to grab the TikTok trends, just like you. Um, you know, uh, in listening to this album, I felt like these were the most like B or C level Drake songs that he's, he's like ever put out together. Um, you know, with, with Tootsie Slide being a, an F, but um, Lemon Pepper Freestyle stood out as just like, you know, obviously you get Ross, who we've talked about as being like a almost can't miss on features but that that switch up in the middle kind of harkens back or i guess it's more just like a beat drop out in the middle kind of harkens back to like old school drake um mm. and then you know he comes back in with a, a solid verse at the end yeah i thought it was pretty good a little long but you know if that was probably the one that stood out most to me anything that stood out to you on here yeah i mean that's great that's always good to hear like the, i believe that's the 12th collab between drake and rick ross throughout their career and none of those songs are bad 
and lemon pepper freestyle certainly doesn't change that up now and yeah it's kind of like drake going back to the old days getting in his bag just laying laying down some bars and that's always good fun to hear and i think what's next the first track is fun because that's just kind of more energetic drake as far as you know drake in his late 30s is when it comes to energy um i like that one you know i it's not like top tier bangers right these songs will all fade away but again there's no god's plan here but i still like that one a lot um and the second track though wants and needs a little baby that was my least favorite just because i don't know just felt like that yep that's a little baby song that sounds like everything else from last year from him and drake was uh just kind of going with the flow on that one it felt like yeah again these aren't uh if this is what we get on certified lover boy i think it's gonna be a huge disappointment but um, like you said, palette cleanser setting the stage. Can't wait to listen to the next Drake album and either love it or hate it or somewhere in between. And if you want to follow us, hit that subscribe button on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod. So you can listen to that review when it comes out. And we got some more music, Dave, as well as, uh, you know, some movies, television, award show predictions. Oh, damn it. Yeah. We got a lot going on today. So why don't we jump right into Zara Larson? Dropping her newest album, Poster Girl. Um, yeah, Sarah Larson, not someone that was on my radar, but I know I know she was on yours. Tell me about it. Yes, I've been a Zara Larson fan for a little bit. Uh, was not up on her when that last album dropped quite a while ago at this point, early 2017. So good. But that was an album loaded with a lot of hits. I didn't become aware of her until catching her in the... BBC Live Lounge YouTube video of Dua Lipa performing I Don't Give a Fuck with background vocals from Charlie XCX, Mo, Alma, and Zara Larson. Knew who Charlie was, knew who Mo was, but that's how I learned about who Alma was. As I said last year, we talked about that album as well as Zara. Obviously, the five of them, all European pop artists, make sense, cool thing. You don't see stuff like that all the time. But I was like, who are, who are these people? Zara and, and Alma. I'm not familiar with them. And Zara Larson, a Swedish pop star who actually has been famous for a very long time, winning the Swedish equivalent of Got America's Got Talent, Sweden's Got Talent, when she was like 10, signing a record deal when she was 14. So she's like been in the record industry for almost 10 years at this point. Crazy. And that second album, as I said, that had hits. Like you can go check those stream numbers. Lush Life is approaching a billion on Spotify. And that's like a really catchy banger. There's a lot of bangers on that album that I, I do like. They're just really tight, well-made pop tracks. I think, you know, you look at those credits, she's got a lot of writers, she's got a lot of producers. It's definitely like a full team effort, you know, music industry type thing. But the song just still hits. I think on Poster Girl, what stood out to me is that. I don't think anything jumped out to me immediately like that. I did notice, though, that she is writing a lot more on this third album than before, which is a nice sign. And she's been a really like vocal person on social media. She's definitely not like a sanitized celebrity. And I think if she can get her music to approach that more, I think that's a good, good, good sign. I think we're getting there with this, but I think Poster Girl... There's still moments where she's a little like overproduced. Mm-hmm. I think like, there was a little overuse of auto tune here and there on, on the album, but still some good moments for me. Yeah, I think the 
the comp that came to my mind, and I don't mean this in any way as a diss, but it might sound that way, is like Sia Light, so to speak. Almost like uh, her vocal range may not be all the way up to Sia, but the sound and kind of like the construction of her songs reminded me a lot of, of Sia's music. Um, I, I thought there was a lot to like on here. I agree. I don't know if, if anything jumped out the way that some of those uh, those big hits from the, the other album did. But, you know, like it, it kind of ranges from like disco pop to like more like toned back R&B pop, which yeah. I, I appreciated. And like, you know, for the R&B side, like Love Me Land, um, which is, you know, higher on the track order um, or, you know, then we switch it up a little bit further down the line. Um, Look What You've Done, I thought was a standout from this album. You know, you really get that disco feel. Um, very just like infectious type dance sound. So I, I really appreciated the variety on here. And I, I, I didn't know that she had this media presence, but I think certainly if, if she can start to merge and, and say a little bit more on her songs, I think it would go a long way to maybe making a more meaningful album, but still a joy to listen to. What stood out to you with, with Poster Girl? Yeah, yeah. Just thinking to the production. Um, the title track Poster Girl I really like that dance beat there um, conversely Wow which had already been released yeah. and is being seems to be doing numbers for her that's produced by Marshmallow funny enough hmm. um, now on, on like the negative end of production I Need Love that's where like the autotune goes too far like I, I, I'm not against vocoder effects I think they can sound really cool think of sometime like like uh, delicate from taylor mm. swift on reputation one of the i think i shall highlights off that album right uh and that's all vocoder but in this instance like it starts off strong and then just never stops and like i you just kind of like overdub it because she's a strong vocalist she doesn't really need to rely yeah. on this kind of stuff and sometimes the beats can just drown her out too um on the other hand though like a song like holy smokes i think that one's my favorite at the moment okay. um oh sorry no um Wait, what song was that? Holy Smokes was the hook on, um, I believe, Poster Girl. Uh, hmm. And I was like, I thought that was, a, it was a really catchy hook, the way she was saying that. Um, yeah, so I, I was a fan of that one. Uh, Ruin My Life, that one's been out a while, yeah. a few years at this point. It's uh, done that a lot of numbers because it's been out for a while. And that was kind of interesting. And I, I actually like the way she talked about that one because that one's like not the most like empowering, uplifting message. Mm-hmm. But I think, the way she like owns it and like that like masochism of her yeah the relationship she's singing about like i think it's still it still kind of fits the way the, the persona she has yeah ruined my life and fff with the exclamation point i guess it'd just be f um i thought really stood out and i agree with ruined my life i definitely was like taken aback a little bit like on first listen but i was like how many people kind of just talk like this in terms of relationships like just ruin me or destroy me like those sorts of things i thought yeah. it I thought it was in line with the way people kind of talk about relationships today, for sure. And I agree. Wow. Um, the production on that is pretty interesting with like the way the horns and uh, the rhythm of her singing around the chorus and, and the instruments there is pretty uh, well done, I thought. But yeah, I mean, I think this is probably not her best album. I think there's probably some better stuff to come, especially if you look to the songs off the last one. But she's she's gonna be around she's popular she's yeah only 23 too again nine years in the game it's her third album but just turned 23 in december so 
Zara Larson. We'll see how big this does in the U.S. because I think she's still not like a mega star. And she actually did speak about this a lot with the press about how she, you know, let the momentum fade away off that second album so good. And like you have this huge international smash like Lush Life, a song that goes 10 times platinum in your home country, but also goes platinum in like 10 other countries, right? And then you don't have the follow-up come out on time and the momentum fades away. And she's like, she, I actually thought she had a really astute way to put it. She's like, I'm not Rihanna. Like, mm. the people aren't going to be waiting for me forever the way they would wait for someone like her. And so I felt like I just had to put this out. But also, I, I, she hadn't rushed it out. And I, you know, I think that, that's interesting. So we'll see if this restarts, you know, momentum of Zara Larson, the international pop star. But either way, successful artist to this point. Yeah, I mean, she has three songs over 400,000, 400 million views on Spotify. So she, yeah. she's doing all right. Um, why don't we move on, though, to a, a little bit more established band, Kings of Leon, dropping, I think this is their eighth studio album. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I mean, When You See Yourself, that's that's the name of it. Um, you know, I want to preface this by mentioning who the producer was for them on this. And the producer was a guy named... Uh, Marcus Darves, Dravs, um, who has worked with Coldplay and Mumford and Sons. And I think that really is evident on this album because while I think there's some really interesting takes um, and and some interesting directions that they go in, a bit of it feels uh, meandering to me at times. And I found myself just kind of feeling like Kings of Leon really took the like sex is on fire type route and it's just kind of like stay in that lane um and how far they've fallen from like molly's chamber is just uh kind of disappointing to me at least uh, falling from that sound that garage uh-huh. rock sound yeah yeah it's i think that's actually funny because they have like a love-hate relationship with sex is on fire and mm. uh you know you know is it you somebody yeah yeah uh... you somebody was huge yeah, well, I mean, again, that's the peak of their career. Like, they win Record of the Year for you, somebody. They won a few other Grammys. They nominated for a lot around that time. And then they did their, their darndest to not get those comparisons again. And th- that producer you mentioned, I believe they worked with him on the last album as well from uh, 2016, is it? Walls? Walls. Yes. Yeah. So it's been a while for them as a, as a band, and they're definitely one of those more established legacy bands from the 2000s that can still drop as we've been talking about recently. But I mean, I'm not a Kings of Leon guy, so I don't have like the best frame of reference, but for me, this definitely quite quickly blended all together and sounded like a big nothing burger. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because in reading reviews online, they've really ranged. And I think some people kind of see this as, like the the strokes most recent album where ah. they kind of saw like the evolution of the band and like oh, okay they're they're trying to become a little bit different they're trying to change their style up more they're experimenting with some sounds like the the difference between a song like um time and disguise which feels like this nice bass groove and then um was it claire and eddie which is like this you know uh country rock tune kind of more to their roots and then even something like uh stormy you know a song where like the drums are really washed out a bit you can tell that they're they're trying their range but it just doesn't seem to really mesh together in a way that's interesting a lot do they have that do they have that range 
Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 nothing stood out to me. I don't know. I, I think there were some moments for me, right? Like in talking about them kind of stealing some of the, the styles or trying on some, some new hats, so to speak. Um, Golden Restless Age stood out. Um, kind of a callback to like Future Islands type vibe with like that like bass groove that's kind of like in the background. Um, the guitar solo that kind of came in. Um, and the it had this like slow build up and then the guitars kind of come raging in and kind of falls back, I thought. Um, I don't know. Uh, and I guess that was maybe more my, my feeling for Wave 2, which is another standout for me, how they kind of built it up to then like drop it back, drop the sound back out and uh, kind of create that feeling of like being caught up in a wave. But yeah, I think overall, not not a memorable Kings of Leon album. And I don't know if they've had one since the Use Somebody Sex is on Fire album. I, th- I think that I don't even really remember what that Only album been was like called. 15 years, NBD. <laughs> well, you know, it's tough because the lead singer had some like substance abuse issues and they, that, that kind of, I think, took a lot of steam out of their momentum. And, uh, you know, I think some people might also say that moving to that Sex is on Fire type sound was a bit of like selling out from that original garage rock sound i mean uh that first album is so much heavier and uh real like like hammering guitar type sound like thumping drums and now it's a bit softer and uh, maybe just the evolution of a any rock band nowadays but is the music still interesting <laughs> yeah the thing that stuck to me recently was that alongside this album release they were also releasing it as a nft mm. And just the growing conversation of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, like crypto art. You know, it's been a big thing with NBA Top Shot and sports memorabilia and like the trading aspect of that. But also seeing its effect on art, both positive and negative, is uh, ongoing as well. And to see a, you know, major label legacy rock band get in the mix like this, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Dave, do you have a, a Top Shot yet? No, um, it's too late. Too late for you now. It's too late. If you could have one like top shot highlight, what would you want? Well, here's the thing. From what I understand, if you actually know the game and you know what's good, what's going to happen, you can take advantage of the idiots that just like to gamble and buy sports memorabilia. So I have this this allure of taking advantage of the morons, but I haven't actually <laughs> done it yet. I think part of that is because Emmanuel quickly doesn't have any top shots yet <laughs> yeah well we'll see soon <laughs> enough i'm sure um if you want to check out or see if kings of leon is something that this album might be for you check out our nostalgia best of 2021 where we'll definitely have a song from kings of leon sarah larson and drake uh, lemon pepper from scary hours 2 is already on there so check that out oh, yeah why don't we move on to tv though dave uh and check back in with wandavision um, uh, nine episode run wrapping up this past Friday. Um, you know, I, I think I want to kind of just start with, did WandaVision meet your expectation in terms of quality of the show, but also the, uh, I don't know, the energy around the show, the, <laughs> the fandom around the show. Were, were you surprised by any of it? Yeah, well, I think that's the thing. You have to have the correct expectations 
for MCU on TV, the same way you did with Star Wars on TV with The Mandalorian. And The Mandalorian did a really good job of uh, conveying expectations while also leaving you wanting more. And I think the difference with WandaVision is that there is no Baby Yoda. There is no, like, bomb waiting to explode on the show, right? In the case of WandaVision, and we can, there's, there's so many angles to take this after seeing the full, full season. In the case of WandaVision, uh, if, you're, if you're wanting wanting to see, like, consequential MCU moments and, and you know, earth-shattering, uh, groundbreaking things occur in the plot, you're not going to get that. And newsflash, you're not going to get that in Falcon and the Winter Soldier either. That's not what's happening here. In the case of WandaVision, I think where it did meet my expectations was the first two thirds of the show when it was allowed to just be a TV show and also pay really interesting and generous homage to classic sitcoms of the previous decades. When the show had to put that to the side and serve as its greater MCU uh, requirements, I was less interested. So it really all depends on what you're watching and what you're looking for, I think, with this. And it's really notable that the conversation around WandaVision, like a lot of MCU stuff, is often more focused on what's not happening, what's Mm -hmm. not yet occurred. What is Kevin Feige doing next? Where is the puzzle going? What piece did he just play versus actually evaluating what you're watching? And again, WandaVision, the beginning, was well-made TV. And it's almost unfair to the show to put other things on it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when you introduce uh, Quicksilver, played by Evan Peters of the Fox iteration of Quicksilver, you encourage this as well, right? Yes. So it re- again, it really depends what angle you're coming from, I think. Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, it exceeded expectations in terms of the quality of the show because I, I, I think even when it got into like the more Marvel-y stuff. And certainly I think the ending was very Marvel ending. Um, and, and actually I think could have been better, but the, uh, the showrunner, um, not, not Kevin Feige, but uh, uh, Jack Schaefer had yeah. talked about in an interview, how the COVID-19 pandemic has actually had made them kind of have to wrap things up quicker than they wanted which actually affected some of the things that happened in the finale which is a bit disappointing um but i also think the fact that he got so much buzz going around it is really interesting because i mean wanda and vision as their own characters hmm. i didn't really find either one really that interesting in any of the phases and that's probably barely given any like individual screen time so right no one blame you exactly like uh, and the one film that they did get a lot of screen time and is probably the worst avengers movie so um you know not a lot there to begin with and the fact that i ended up really wanting to know where this show was going how these characters and their story together was going to develop is pretty cool um i think the show was always going to be about Wanda dealing with grief and the fact that it became theories about Dr. Strange possibly Hmm. showing up Mephisto all of these Richards right it's like John Krasinski as Reed Richards in a uh, episode of The Office that Wanda puts herself in it's like yeah you know that these all sound great 
but why don't we like kind of pull back on the expectations like you talked about i think that in the end actually probably hurt the perception of the show to some people which is a bit unfair yeah totally uh the thing is to me watching mandalorian not advance plot from week to week at times that was okay to me because we were still getting well-made science fiction western stuff happening right you didn't have to be invested in the greater star wars plot to enjoy what you were seeing week to week and yeah maybe when it's a quote villain of the week filler episode ooh, it's still well-made right it's still being television and it's cool Thing is, I don't know if the MCU has that in it. In the case of WandaVision, it was okay because we had this these really obvious window dressing on the show with again all the sitcom homage and going through that was excellent. But if we didn't have that, what is like like MCU just doing stuff for a week gonna look like? That's what I'm worried about with Falcon now. Because yeah. when there's nothing special happening, I don't feel like the MCU is actually rich enough to support this in terms of standing out. And if you think about WandaVision, my least favorite stuff about it was everything that wasn't with Wanda and Vision. Mm-hmm. Do I like Randall Park and uh, Kat Dennings, like Darcy and Jimmy Woo? Of course. And Tiana Paris as uh, Monica Rambeau, she's great. I, I like them. They had nothing to do with this story at all. The only reason they're there is because this is the MCU. They don't actually need to be there at all. And Tyler Hayward, the acting sword director, really just evolves into a cartoony, worthless villain by the end. All of that was so unnecessary. I wish they, you know, the show could have actually just committed to just being about Wanda and Vision, right? But of course, it can't do that because it has to serve the MCU master and stuff. Yeah, you know, I I think you're right that it doesn't have it in it right now. But I actually feel like the direction that this this next these next stages of Marvel is moving actually could build that out. Because when I think about what kind of like structure do you need with that? Is that you need like a world that people want to spend time in? And I think the X-Men and the Fantastic Four are actually perfectly set up to provide that, right? Because if you get just like the the X-Men at you know, Professor X school for the gifted. Um, you can definitely just kind of take the playbook from the cartoon and create all these side quests if you want, or all these things that are happening episode to episode don't actually have consequence to a larger picture. Same with, I think the fantastic four, like, you know, I think you can kind of build the same, you know, some side episodes out with that, but yeah, with someone like Wanda and vision, when they're doing stuff that's inconsequential again i have no investment in these characters beyond the fact that we saw like them in the avengers movies and obviously vision being killed twice in front of wanda is pretty horrible but i didn't necessarily leave feeling like a huge connection to them so it's like Mm -hmm. yeah do i really care what you're doing the rest of the time not really well the thing with wanda vision for me too is (laughs) the way it ends right there's like other there's little little nods oh it's wanda being bad she's now the scarlet witch we got the scarlet witch origin story magneto's nowhere to be seen maybe this is a a version of scarlet witch where she's not mutant at all or a daughter of magneto that already exists in the comics that wouldn't surprise me but 
I laugh when people are like, oh, maybe she's going to go bad. Maybe she'll be a villain in Doctor Strange too. Because if they wanted to do that, they could have really set that up a much better way in WandaVision. Mm-hmm. But they hand wave the fact that she imprisoned a whole town of innocent people for months. <laughs> they just totally yeah. laugh away that way. And, and Monica is like, yeah, you know, I probably would have done that too for my mom. And it's like, <laughs> what? What the hell? <laughs> Like, oh man I, I i thought that was ridiculous at least that, lean into it that was really great when she was like they'll never know what you sacrifice like what what you sacrificed you just took away two months of their lives that's the <laughs> other thing too sacrifice what you mean her fake husband and kids her not right. real husband and kids that's also kind of a sticking point for me because they're not actually real right but yeah. in the process vision is back white vision is now normal vision out there to be brought back in when they need to bring him back in. That's cool. Makes sense. They sure. were going to do that eventually. Yeah. Sure. But like, I don't know if the beats fully land as much as they should. And I think they could have done a better job of actually leaning into this just being about Wanda having a tough time. Same thing with Iron Man 3. I love Iron Man 3 because it's actually just about Tony Stark having PTSD and being fucked up. Yep. And when they actually lean into that and just let Tony be off the rocker a little bit it's good when they get away from that's when the movie earns most of its detractors so yeah like i have quibbles but like again like there's so much of the show that's so well done you know and i I appreciate that and i hope they learn lessons from uh taking these chances and now i'm just hopeful that falcon and winter soldier can surprise me by being at least a little bit unconventional yeah you know I, i and i think to get the finale that we did and after getting episode eight, which just felt so poignant. And so like it made a, such a different point that I feel like a lot of the Marvel um, movies and, and stories have tried to make, which is, you know, really exploring grief and also, uh, you know, the meta way that they're like, you're watching a TV show during one of the most traumatic times anyone has ever lived through. And you're watching a TV show about how this woman puts herself in a TV show. Cause that's how she coped with a lot of her trauma. It's like very meta. And then talking about like how you have to actually go back and look at it to get through it. They had the great line, you know, what is grief? If not love persevering, they had a lot of beautiful moments in that episode. And Catherine Hahn crushed it in that episode, in my opinion. And, throughout the series i thought she was fantastic but uh to kind of just wrap up on such a dud of a episode it kind of felt like maybe they could have used an episode or two more just to just to figure it out a little bit it doesn't have to be nine episodes right why why does that be nine episodes falcon's only six Uh, and loki i think is only like five or six too so Mm -hmm. it's you know tell the story you want to tell but it's it's also okay to give yourself 10 or 11 if, if need be um uh, any last thoughts on WandaVision, though? As far as we know, there's no plans for a season two at this time. Sounds like we'll next get, of course, Wanda in Doctor Strange's Multiverse of Madness, as we already know, and Rambo pop up in Captain Marvel 2. Mm-hmm. Really, Monica's whole presence on this was just to set up Captain Marvel 2 a little bit and get her her powers, I guess. But like mm-hmm. seeing like the scroll pop up and it's like, oh, cool, that was entirely predictable i suppose you know yeah there, there's a article on the ringer.com about how um this wandavision really uh, talks about womanhood in, instead of just like girl power in terms mm-hmm. of marvel comics yeah. i thought was pretty good so i'd recommend people give that a read to maybe build out your perspective on the show a little bit more but uh dave why don't we switch it up 
go to the movie realm and let's talk about Night of the Kings, a foreign language film entry at the upcoming Oscars. We'll be talking about if we think it will actually get nominated in just a little bit. But this was a really intense and interesting and well shot movie that really surprised me and was just like completely terrifying and overwhelming in all sense of the words obviously um you know being foreign language you have to get over the one inch barrier of the (laughs) the you know uh, subtitles but once you do you kind of jump into this world of this prison in uh maca you know the ivory coast uh only prison i think out in the the area of of the country and it's run by prisoners you know uh, mm-hmm. it, it has a hierarchy and a structure and really the guards are just kind of there to kind of keep order through violence when necessary but the rest of the time there's this inherent social structure which was really fascinating and uh created a pretty interesting story how did you feel about night of the kings yeah so this played at venice last year then got picked up by neon for distribution uh came out in the theaters last week, just hit VOD here. A uh, rare for a movie from Cote d'Ivoire, aka the Ivory Coast, to get Western distribution such as this. Um, in this instance, the foreign languages, it's both French and uh, uh, Duya, D-Y-U-L-A, which is a West African language. But yeah, like you said, it's pretty stark right away how it's like a inmates running the asylum type uh situation here and you know with that like handheld camera claustrophobic settings in this really like dense overpopulated prison uh you're immediately thrown right into that and uh i appreciate that like there is limited exposition in the beginning you're just kind of told to expect to figure out what's going what's going on from the jump but i also found that a bit challenging towards the end because the movie is very is very sparse with its exposition and it's almost more dreamlike and uh, fantastical as um, this new prisoner gets appointed this uh, storyteller role by his fellow men and has to uh, you know keep everyone entertained for the evening under the red moon and then he's you know there's there's, there's tension built up constantly and I, I think that that that's done really well but I did struggle a little bit with um with the I think like the lack of forward momentum a little bit like when it, we were focused on these, these storytelling and we'd actually like see it visualized and stuff um and sometimes it was like a little distracting with cgi but when we'd see that story visualized i was uh i was a little taken aback because it, it was almost so stream of conscious and the other prisoners uh bring that up later it was like oh your story makes no sense mm-hmm. you know the, the was it the story of the uh zuma zuma king yep zama king yeah, it it was. Um, I I agree with the um, like stream of conscious type storytelling, but I think that also feels just so realistic to a person thrown into the situation where you know they are charged with murder, um, part of a gang, and uh, come to this prison and have to. You know, it, it's super overwhelming from the first minute when he drives in and he gets out of the, the truck and they're just hanging out of the windows and then he gets just thrown in and they all turn around and look at him and kind of like run around him and Blackbeard proclaims him the, the Roman, the storyteller for the night. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, 
over it, I, I think the word overwhelming just came to my mind throughout because it's even as he's telling the story and like there's that part where the the crowd of people kind of go and like follow them around are just saying like they they killed that person and are like chasing mm-hmm. after them that feels a lot like the prison in a sense where it's just like almost like this mob in a sense of people overtaking them and it's really claustrophobic um a lot of tight shots a lot of um close-ups really like especially when blackbeard you know decides to abdicate his throne and go down and and accept his fate and it's just like the whole thing just feels so tight like your chest is Mm kind of tight throughout a great you know a real intense sense of dread when you kind of figure out that he's telling the story for his life so to speak so I, i think it all like makes sense i agree that some of the like the lack of exposition was you had to kind of fill in parts of it for yourself and figure things out but i think that was to kind of put you into this experience i thought it was pretty effective philip lacote seems like a really talented uh, filmmaker someone to be keeping an eye on too yeah i'm also a fan of uh, steven uh, tian chu who plays blackbeard he was in the french film les miserables last year Hmm. plays uh, the mayor in that movie he's a pretty big part of the film he's pretty good in that um yeah uh, i i think uh it, it's definitely easy to recommend because it's you know, i think both kind of have like these like, dreamlike states but again just like a kind of like a raw energy yeah uh, it's hard to replicate in movies definitely and it's sitting i believe the last time i checked at 99 percent rotten tomatoes so yeah, pretty we'll good see. reviews it, it made the uh best international film shortlist which is the top 15 so we'll see if it makes the top five and actually gets nominated uh so well tbd on that yeah i don't think it's a shot to win but nomination would be nice let's jump to raya and the last dragon we're going animated here um raya and the last dragon uh released on disney plus uh but kind of like mulan you had to pay to watch it premier access also in theaters yeah if if people are going going to theaters theaters. again a little bit um and yeah i mean this was just really delightful um in my opinion Uh, i mean i think these animated films always crush it in my my opinion i mean even the ones that aren't so good uh or or don't hit as much i think still uh, always i find impressive i what i think stood out to me about raya in terms of these animated films is this is probably the best action i feel like in animated films the the fight scenes felt really fun and intense and um you know more captivating than some of the other ones um i do think there's it's not a perfect uh animated film and there's some parts that lag for me a little bit but overall i found it to be a really interesting and compelling story how did you feel about ryan the last dragon though dave yeah i did like it a lot uh, this will be on disney plus free of charge on june 4th if you wish to wait come back but yeah so this is a the 59th disney animated feature not pixar just disney so this will be the uh, first one since frozen 2 and it's a lot better than frozen 2 let me tell you frozen 2 mm-hmm bad <laughs> but I, I i thought riot ripped i thought this was was, was tremendous um mm-hmm. what really stood out to me is it, it's such a rich lived in world with excellent character design there, there's you you're, you're watching the movie the whole time you just want more from it 
And you can definitely see this dawning a new IP. Uh, it's being very well received. Definitely. So I would not be surprised that we get more stuff in this Raya world of uh, Kumandra, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, obviously really Southeast Asian inspired, but still a fantastical world. And uh, like you said, the action is good. It's the, the pace. The movie really moves. And I actually could have done if it was a little longer, because again, I, I wanted more time with so many aspects of this world and the story, because so much of it's so interesting and feels very vivid. Um, so I uh, de de definitely expect us to see more, more Ryan yeah. stuff. I also was uh, struck by uh, the directors, you know, Don Hall, it's two directors, Don Hall is a Pixar and Disney vet, but the other co-director is Carlos Lopez Estrada, who has not done animation before. He's most well known as the director of blind spotting with David Diggs a few years back. So mm. definitely quite the, uh, you know, entry into animation to just show up and co-direct something like this. Cause again, it's really well made. Yeah. You know, I, I think for me, um, you, you mentioned a lot of really great things. I think the thing I liked most was that the voice cast was actually true to that area or at least to asian actors as this is a movie right. that's you know obviously borrowing very heavily from asian lore and i think there was one non-white person or non-asian person um one white person in the voice cast and uh, that was alan tudyk who played tuk tuk uh, yeah <laughs> so, i actually didn't notice that until i looked it up yeah so um i thought that was great and uh I do have to say, when Aquafina first started talking, I didn't know it was her playing this role, and I was like, mm -hmm. "Oh no, this sounds like Scarlett Johansson!" Like, they, there's no way she put herself in this kind of role again. But, That's um, yeah, the I thought Aquafina as a voice actor in this was just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, I think the whole voice cast is great. I mean, you get Gemma Chan, uh, you get Benedict Wong, uh, Kelly Marie Tran. Like, everybody right. in this is really talented. I will say there was a bit of a early pushback to this, or at least, you know, out, outcry because this movie is largely inspired by South East Asian stuff, but just about the whole cast is actually East Asian with the exception of Kelly Marie Tran. So when it comes to representation, there's always ways to improve, but I am quite happy for Kelly Marie Tran. Obviously after all she went through with abuse post Star Wars, mm -hmm. the last Jedi, this is her, you know, first real high profile role since then. I thought she did a really good job. I actually really liked the way they set up Raya versus Namari, voiced by yeah. Emma Chan. That relationship was really central to this movie working as an adventure film. And I think, yeah, the ending and like the the whole like the the lesson of like trusting mm -hmm. everyone around you. Yeah, it's a little hokey, a little thrown together. Yeah. And in general, like many aspects of the story are quite like arch archetypical, right? Like we have all these warring families and, and and factions and yeah like you, know, you have to travel around to get, get get these items right and you have to avoid the traps like indiana jones there's so much that's familiar too but again because it's so i think still richly and fully realized and you have that strong central relationship between namari and raya it all still really works and you don't mind the convention i, I actually just welcome it and i think because mm -hmm. because it's so well made and also possibly familiar again tuck tuck a uh, animal monster companion like many Disney animated leads have had with them before. Right. It's yeah. all good. Yeah. I, I think the world that they created is just so wonderful. It makes, like you said, it makes you want to explore more. And I also think the way that they set up like parallels in there, um, 
you know, the, the main characters, the what five or six that were traveling together. I mean, you get uh, the little baby who lost her parents. And then you get the, the big guy voiced by Benedict Wong. I think his right. name is Tong. Um, yeah. And he lost his, his family and kind of like how they end up like pairing up and um, it kind of like suffered your expectations or you have obviously Raya um, and Namari that showdown, but then you also have um, what's his name? Isaac Wang as Boone. Who's like this guy who like lost his sister and like, really wants to like see his sister again. And even though they're not sisters, you kind of know where it's going, where they're like really like kindred spirits who are, you know, kind of torn apart by their, their parents is different views of the world, even though they mm-hmm. might share the same view. So I thought some of that stuff really worked really well for me. Um, and I, I really liked Sizu. I mean, you can just see the the McDonald's like Happy Meal toys of <laughs> Sizu, like a, as we speak, it's just a really lovable character. One thing I liked about those dragons too is that they don't actually fly. They like walk on the air with like these like mm-hmm. magical like bubbles they briefly spawn to walk on. Just a cool cool way to visualize flight in a slightly different way than we're, we're used to seeing. For sure. Um, any last thoughts on Ryan and the Last Dragon, Dave? Yeah, I mean, going in, didn't have like huge expectations for this. I think, you know, most people I talk to, it's like, ah, I don't know if I need to drop the premier access coin again after Mulan being a pretty uh, roundly accepted disappointment. But uh, I would definitely uh, advise people at least wait if you have to wait, wait until it comes out, but don't miss it. This is, this is really good. And, you know, I was thinking like, in terms of Disney animated films of like the past 10 years or so, like other than I think Zootopia, this is this and Zootopia yeah. are probably my favorites of the past few years. Like also you'd have the two Frozens, you'd have Big Hero 6, Wreck-It Ralph 1 and 2, and Moana are the other ones. Zootopia was a little slow for me. This is probably my favorite one, I'd say. Uh, definitely worth the watch. And if you know, if you have to wait till June, wait till June, but definitely watch it when you can. Let's move on though to a golden globe winning performance uh, from jodie foster in the mauritanian the uh the movie based off of the book uh guantanamo diary by mahamadou Ould salahi um and it really tells his story um uh, being um imprisoned in guantanamo bay by the united states government and tortured for what was it like 17 years 15 14 years. years insane spanning um, two presidencies and uh really heartbreaking tale and then you know obviously you have jodie foster and shaleen woodley playing these lawyers from i think they're the aclu right um, i don't know if no i don't ever, think so i think they're just no, from a firm private just firm, from right? a firm. Uh, yeah so i it just playing these lawyers to you know pro bono are helping this guy out um and you know, I found this movie to be, um, I think it had a little bit of the Aaron Sorkin uh, Trial of the Chicago 7 touch in terms of Benedict Cumberbatch's character. Um, and maybe we'll mm. talk about that a little bit more. But I think overall, um, I found this to be a pretty interesting watch. And just really, uh, it gets the the point across in terms of how disgusting the treatment of these people yeah, uh, was. And I definitely left just being like, man sometimes fuck the u.s government mm-hmm. i don't know <laughs> yeah and i think that's the thing is watching the mauritanian which i which i did like you can't help but be struck by 
ways this movie could have been better and I think mm. actually could have been exceptional. Reminds me a lot of the report from uh, 2019, the docudrama starring Adam Driver about similar subject matter, but coming yeah. out from a different way. And you know, in this case, the Mauritanian, the problem is, is that the most interesting part of the story, the most important part of the story, of course, is Muhammadu, played by uh, Tahar Rahim, who was nominated for a Golden Globe. Um, we get away from Salahi far too much in the Mauritanian. And that's the that, that's bad because he should be the, the central figure in his own story. You mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch playing, um, I believe it's a colonel in the military who's colonel charged with, yeah, pro- prosecuting uh, Salahi at the mm-hmm. you know behest of Rumsfeld and Department of Defense and everything. And shockingly, this man of faith who, despite having you know personal you know, attachments to 9-11, he finds a conscience once he realized what's happened to Slahi and also the lack of evidence against the man. But we, we, we didn't need, need any of that. We really didn't need that angle at all. No. We could have more time with Slahi himself. He's better yeah. for it. And yeah. that's, just, that's just unfortunate. Yeah, I thought some of the most um, interesting and, and affecting moments were Salahi by himself in the like like eight by eight foot cage that they allowed him to have outdoor time in and talking with the uh what was the guy from Marseille yeah um and that's great just uh such a touching way to kind of like show how his faith really propelled him through but then also how uh you know the the Marseille prisoner wasn't able to uh, continue on decided not to continue on based on the treatment he was uh, mm-hmm. dealing with and how that kind of led to this downward spiral I thought probably the most affecting part of the movie was when they uh, they get his, his his letter right about like all the treatment and they just kind of go through and show you like the all the, the ways that they tortured the prisoners yeah. there and I, I i really felt like I, I feel like that montage is gonna like stick in my brain like wearing the mask like sexually um embarrassing the, the yep. prisoners mm-hmm. forcing them to do things and mock execution things. on the water all yeah. that stuff yeah. threatening to bring his Cold mother into the prison and just uh mm. t- terribly terribly uh disturbing um which uh is you know what happened like at yeah. least it's really disgusting <laughs> the thing is it's like we almost like we build to that right like right you could get all that it's kind of like thrown at the end it's like final like 30 minutes and mm-hmm. leading to that point the movie like does this thing where if you don't know the real life story you might have suspicions of salahi and whether he's actually done it right he's he's picked up by the u.s government uh, or picked up by the mauritanian government given to the u.s um few months after 9-11 i believe because his uh cousin was it was actually directly involved with al-qaeda and so he had like previous relations with al-qaeda he traveled around and it's kind of like a guilty by association thing they called him forrest gump when it comes to all that mm-hmm. and um the guy who played a uh, cumberbatch played in real life literally spoke uh on you know real life he said that this was the case of uh, a lot of smoke with no fire where there actually was no evidence at all this man had done anything or had any uh, aspirations to do anything wrong he just was around you know suspiciously i guess whatever right <laughs> yet that obviously doesn't mean you can be jailed for 14 years without even being charged with a crime that should go without saying 
I think my issue too would be along those lines, like when he's getting interrogated, right? They're like, oh, well, you fought with Al Qaeda, right? You, you, you were, you were there in, in like the late 80s, early 90s in Afghanistan. And then Slahi's like, yeah, I was fighting with the Mujahideen. Uh, so were you guys, same side, right? Because this movie's like kind of taking the docudrama angle, I think they should have hammered that home a little bit more. Because I think to the average viewer, they don't really know what that means. Right. I think they should have a good, chunk, good job of like, like saying like, hey, I, I could have been using AK-47s that you guys gave us for all you know, right? Like I was fighting with you guys against the Taliban. Like, yeah. There, there was some real life history I wish they could have like hammered home a little bit. But because they want to like keep it vague, they, they, they intentionally held that back, I think. They want to like keep his, you know, his guilt uh, a mystery and like you had that thing with Shailene Willie where she's like he did it he confessed and she gets all hysterical about it right and again there's, there's, there's choices that uh, I think prevent the movie from reaching its potential because the story was there yeah no I, I agree I think the I think there's things that could have been better but I still felt like it was a pretty strong film in my opinion and uh, I I think it's it's hard to like for me to envision how they would have hammered home some of those points. I guess it would have had to have been like a another perspective. Cause in that, that situation where you are a prisoner who is brought to Cuba and tortured and you're just trying to like survive at that point to then be like, no, you guys were supplying arms to the, you know, these people for this conflict. It's, so it's a tough, uh, tough stance to ask that guy to take in that moment, I'd feel like. But yeah, maybe on the like American side, you know, like the Stuart Couch character played by Cumberbatch could have definitely driven that home in his conversations with Zachary Levy and things like that. Because they, they were kind of going in that direction in terms of like how they were just trying to like pin things on people without any evidence with with Levy. So, right. right. Um, yeah, you know, I definitely I, I thought could have been better, but I still felt like it was pretty effective. Um you mentioned uh, Shailene Woodley. I don't know if I just like, don't like her as an actress. Um, I just didn't find her to be that strong. And then it reminded me just of the HBO series, uh, big little lies. Yeah. Big little lies. And how I always just kind of found her performance in that to be not really that be catching either. She know. definitely hasn't had the best roles in quite a while. Like at least big little lies was high profile and she right. was, acting along you know big time actors but like after divergent flames out like what descendants is like the one like really good movie she's been in and like was it uh spectacular now was it like she, she's she been in a few things but we're we're, we're kind of far away from that at this point it's kind of weird right like mm-hmm. you would have thought she would have been a bigger deal and like the, again this she's a thankless like supporting lawyer Lackey, like she's yeah. She, yeah she's she's not even the jodie foster character no right like, that, this is a completely vanquished role that like if you omit it from the film nothing changes yeah and, and that's that's the thing is you have you know jodie foster and tahar rahim and even cumberbatch who i thought were really strong i mean even zachary Le- levy i was like okay or is it Levi? Yeah. I think I keep yeah. saying Levy. Reminded me of the John Hamm character in the report. It's like this is yeah. a fucked up guy involved right. in the U.S. government. <laughs> but I was kind of like, you know, like this is a good, look, good like look for him, and putting a little range on uh, yeah. for him. It, she just came across as a big dud for me, so I, I don't know. A little disappointing on that end, but you know, I, I still think it's it's a 
good. It's an interesting watch, and I think you can definitely do worse in terms of some of the movies out right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this directed by Kevin McDonald. It's probably it's definitely his definitely his most high profile film since Last King of Scotland. You know, back in 06 where Forrest Whitaker won Best Actor. Like, it's been a long time since he's made like I think a zeitgeisty film and Mauritanian as a late breaking uh you know awards play. Um, you can do worse, no question. For sure. Um, why don't we move on though to um. A sequel, 23 years in the making. Eh, not really, but... Uh, oh, so it's older than that, ain't it? Uh, 20, 23, yeah, right? 23, yeah. Probably like 22. Wait, I no, guess. 33. It's no, 89, 88. 33, yeah, wow. Oh, God, I can't do math. It's, 33. it's older than me. I know yeah, that. It's just insane. Definitely, yeah, it's older than me, too. So definitely 33. Um, yeah, coming to America. Not coming to America. Coming to america that's how we're gonna differentiate i think because it's kind of tough but obviously the eddie murphy classic comedy from 1988 uh back then directed by john landis this time he teams back up with craig brewer who he did uh dolomite with which uh you know damn dolomite (laughs) they, they, they seem to have a pretty good uh working relationship going at this point um you know, I, maybe we should start. What did you think of Coming to America, the original? Yeah, I hadn't seen it till uh, just recently. It's I know it's a definitely classic film in his iconic 80s run. Eddie Murphy's, you know, iconic chart topping run. But I, I just had never really seen it. Like, I know it was on TV a lot, but I, I just I just had missed it. Um, but I know it's pretty well regarded. But, you know, I did like it. Um, I think it's a little long, but uh, it's it's funny. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot to like about it. And uh, I appreciated so much of, like, the fact that you're in New York in the 1980s about it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just a lot of, like, likable features of it. And Eddie <laughs> Murphy and also Arsenio Hall at the time are, yeah. are hilarious. And James Earl Jones back then, you know, he still had, like, his the full command of his amazing voice so like Mm -hmm. there's a lot to like no question yeah uh, i i think it's it's a fantastic comedy like you i hadn't watched it all the way through i think i'd seen it all in like bits and pieces somehow you know i i think i watch more tv movies than you do and just kind of like we'll catch things Mm -hmm. here and there um but yeah i i just thought the the original was just fantastic you know kind of weaving this rom-com type feel uh behind what i i would put as like a true comedy that has romance features to it was was really really strong and um as we move on to the sequel coming to america um i think it doesn't quite reach those levels but it's still a really strong sequel for being like you said and i incorrectly said 33 or 23 years in the making Mm -hmm. um and what I, i think i found most like amazing about it was they they seem to find a way to balance all of the original characters while bringing in obviously some new blood you had they they made it about the kids and uh mm-hmm. you know the family story in some sense and that, that didn't feel super like shoehorned in it felt authentic and uh kind of balancing out the the old with the new i thought they did really well how did you feel about the sequel dave so i had a good time with it but i was quite struck with how much it rehashes mm. bits and plots from the original like it's to the point where 
it's really only made for people that are like hardcore fans of the original coming to America. And maybe to many people, that's perfectly fine. That's that that's plenty. Um, but I was a little surprised with how much it just kind of redoes everything. Like in the beginning, you, you they recreate the wake up ritual from the very beginning of the original. And this case, it's like, you know, put on tail with like his, his, the daughter saying uh, good morning. And it's like, if you hadn't like seen the original, you would have no idea why that matters. It's kind of a, a weird scene, right? But even like later, it's like, oh, like well, now we have Tiana Taylor, who's like the uh, the bride to be, and she's mm-hmm. doing the exact same stuff as they wanted the first one. Just I'm here to do whatever you command. Uh, my favorite movie is whatever your favorite movie is. Like it's like, oh wow, like, they're really just running things back. I, I was a little surprised with how uh, on the nose some of it was. Yeah, you know, I I think they added like uh, I think they added enough for me to feel like it was you know uh, still interesting and still engaging. Um, I mean, they they even kind of call themselves out around that, right? Where they're like, yeah, all the movies in America are just sequels that no one really wants or cares about. And I was like, you know, I, I appreciate the meta ness of that. Um, I I guess where I'm like kind of sitting is um i think there was a lot to explore with prince akim like coming to like um grips with you know only having daughters obviously the son being the his bastard child in america um is the plot driver but i really wish we gotten more time with him like with his own daughters and kind of like exploring like what that means to him that the he has to like make those changes, especially when his dad was so resistant to it in the first movie. And there was like a lot of parallel there. And it feels like that kind of gets rushed at the end. Um, but I, I think it runs enough back and is like a true sequel where it's like, yeah, we're going to give you the same stuff, but it's still really enjoyable. I, I, what I will say, I don't really like Leslie Jones outside of SNL very much. And I thought she was like find this movie like and that i think that says a lot about the success of it to me so I yeah I, I thought she was kind of well very well cast for what they were going yeah. for right i mean like a, a little date rapey i guess the the backstory yeah. we learned about from well, how it's told to us but um i think she's pretty effective as labelle's mother um and that, that stuff is kind of fun like the whole like queen's angle to it um it was kind of this movie was shot in atlanta and you can tell it didn't really <laughs> yeah. feel like we went back to new york um yeah which is which is unfortunate uh but there's still lots of funny moments right? like we go back to the barbershop yeah um, barbershop's <laughs> always fun in these movies yeah and like this like the, the way they're talking about stuff kind of feels like it's the voice box for uh eddie pontificating as if he could have if he had done a stand-up routine where he's like oh there's things you can't say anymore and things that you can do now in in, in 2020 or 2021 it's like oh okay i definitely feel like my that, that's eddie's point of view coming across a little haphazardly interesting but you're still getting like the chances for them to do their impressions and arsenio same way right um like sexual chocolate coming back at the end and yep. what struck me was like, oh like you can just it's more obvious that it's eddie murphy doing it yep. because he's a bigger guy now like that, <laughs> that, that that was really funny but i think my favorite moment is when they have the uh the funeral the funeral yeah, for say. james Earl jones before he actually dies <laughs> you have morgan freeman as himself yep. just narrating like some 21 savage shit and no one will call- want to have sex again <laughs> and eddie murphy's like what 
<laughs> I like then, I love that whole thing. And he's like, and then, ladies and gentlemen, salt and pepper. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was hilarious as they obviously yeah. do like a freestyle for uh, what a king for what a man. Mm-hmm. Thought that was amazing. Yeah, no, that, I thought that whole scene was great. Um, yeah, you know, I just really liked, especially after watching the first one through, and I kind of watched these in succession. It just kind of felt nice to like stay in that world for me. Or if you know, if if you've watched, like like loved the movie back then, yeah, going back into that world was just really nice. So, um, I would say this is a, is a success for Eddie Murphy. I mean, it, it's it's interesting for him to do something like Dolomite, where he was getting legitimate like oscar Mm -hmm. nomination buzz and then yeah you know to to do something as silly as this where you know probably will be talked about for but not necessarily something people are going to be like dang right by all accounts this was highly highly watched in its opening weekend Uh, this was paramount made sold to uh, amazon you can watch both movies on amazon right now as well as some other eddie stuff like 48 hours um i think if anything i would have liked more um arsenio i wanted more semi but yeah, he does his full cast of characters. We get all the bringbacks, right? Like the uh, the preacher guy comes back, mm-hmm. the guys at the uh, the guy at the barbershop he plays. But Semi being Semi, I feel like it's kind of on the sidelines. And Semi's, a, I think, great part of the original. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of my favorite callbacks is like the training with like the the sticks and stuff, the or the you know the the weapons from mm-hmm. the beginning. Having that back, his daughter's having it learned it and then at the end that kind of then like saving saving the day right and wesley snipes as general is he it's not not again not as like revelatory as say wesley snipes coming back for dolomite uh, right. in 2019 but it's still great to see wesley and eddie on the same screen yeah no i totally agree i, I would say that this is a success for for eddie murphy and for amazon studios at this point so uh shout out to prince akeem but Dave, while we're, while we're at it, though, oh. Eddie, he's been asked, this, of course, to impress Beverly Hills Cop 4 in development. They have been working on the script. Eddie says that once the script is done, they will make the movie. And it's being directed by the guys who did Bad Boys for Life, which actually sounds like it's a good idea because that was a very successful reintroduction of a action franchise. And the way I feel about it, Beverly Hills Cop 3 when you make a sequel of that trash, why not make more? You're going to do better. Yeah. I mean, uh, I am completely down for another sequel. And you know what? Eddie Murphy, just keep pumping them out. Let, let's get yeah. some more. Do we want? Yeah. Everything he's doing right now seems to be going well. And speaking of going well, there are going to be some people who are going to be very happy in the next week as the Oscar nominations come out. And March Dave, 15th. Why don't we talk about who we think is going to get nominated. We're going to do just the major categories. We're not going to do lighting and costume. We, we probably aren't going to get those ones. Well, those ones are actually probably fairly easy to figure out. But what feels hard is best picture, director. There's only probably one open spot. Who's going to get that? So why don't, why don't yeah, we yeah. jump in? Why don't we start with the best picture noms? Which What, what feels like the locks for this upcoming Oscar noms? Yeah, so at this point, we have nominations from SAG Awards, PGA, and the Writers Guild. Of course, the Globes has happened, and the Critics' Choice Awards also happened, but that's not as impactful on what happens with the Academy. But I think at this point, there's like a nice block of, say, five films that we can lock in for Best Picture. Minari, Nomadland, Trial Chicago 7, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and one night in Miami. 
they have been nominated by just about everything. Uh, notably, Nomadland wasn't nominated for a Writers Guild nomination or SAG, but of course it won at the Globes. It won at the Critics' Choice. It's considered the favorite. So like that group, so Nomadland's safe. That, that group, I feel like, is in Best Picture. And this is a question of like how many more get picked and which movies those are. Judas and the Black Messiah, late entry, has a lot of juice as of late, but didn't get nominated for everything. Uh, Mank, same way. And then, I don't know, after that, you have Defy Bloods, which is one of the oldest movies here. Sound of Metal. Borat 2, maybe. Uh, Promising Young Woman, probably in there as well. So, like, I feel like we, we know the names at this point. There's probably not going to be any, like, major surprises. You know, like, I don't think Palm Springs is going to get nominated for Best Picture. Maybe Screenplay. I'd be very happy if it did get Screenplay, but I feel like we kind of know we know the, the the general field for top contenders at this point. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm trying to think here, like what would be a nomination that would surprise me, but I probably shouldn't be surprised after this field. Something like if Soul made it in there, do you mm-hmm. think Soul's gonna like has yeah. any shot? I could see it. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good saw one actually. Soul, yep. Uh, maybe yeah. News of the World. I guess, which is yeah. kind of love that, intermittently. That'd be really disappointing to me if if that got in there. I, I also feel like Promising Young Woman, um, I feel like that's kind of on the edge of, of nominations only because I, I know that there's been, I think, some critical backlash to it. Um, uh, I think highly lauded, but people, some people feel a bit problematic and maybe not totally make sense all the way through. Um, that So I can see that one maybe surprising me a bit. But yeah, you know, it it's weird because in a, a year where there's so much newness and, and change in the way everybody watched movies this year, it does kind of feel like there's just like a set group of movies that are going to get the nomination and just kind of going to roll with it. Um, right. Anything you would love to see that you don't think will get in, but would be really happy about? Yeah, uh, just on Prophecy Young Woman, it didn't get SAG, but it's gotten everything else to this point. So I, I think it's pretty safe for Best Picture nomination. Um, in terms, yeah, so thinking, like, just thinking to my list, right? Like, stuff that's not going to happen, like First Cow, never really, sometimes, always, stuff like that. Um, trying to think of, like, what's something that's, like, plausible that. Malcolm and Marie? I don't think it's plausible. Think it's Pieces plausible. of a Woman? Hmm. Oh, hillbilly elegy. <laughs> oh god, <laughs> that's the thing. I think unfortunately we have to talk about that movie still. Um, yeah, I mean some some there's there's a few things that like there's been like no juice to it. Right, like Kingsley Benadire. I really thought he could have made Oscar push, but he hasn't really been nominated at all, which is unfortunate despite all the plaudits for his performance. So why could I say that would happen now? You know? Yeah. Um, Zendaya uh, got just a critic's choice nomination that's it so it doesn't feel like she can sneak into the last best actress spot we've talked about as being up in the air you know mm-hmm. yeah. so I, I, maybe when we see the nominations we'll have a better idea in a week but there might actually be less surprise than we expect i don't know yeah it's, it's seeming that way why don't we go to best director where um i think we kind of have an idea of probably the at least three or four of them right so zoe chow David Fincher, Lee Isaac Chung, and, and Sorkin feel pretty safe for this, I'd say. Zoe Chow, that's good. Oh, Chloe, Chloe Zhao. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I am 
I'm exhausted. So uh, my, my apologies to the, the great and Golden Globe winning Chloe Zhao. But yes. yeah, th- those four feel pretty safe to me. But who do you got in that fifth spot? Dave? Yeah, you, you said Zhao, Sorkin, Chung, and Fincher. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think the fifth spot, Regina King. Regina King or Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman. Um, other than those, I don't. I think that might be it, unless the father like really happens. That would be awfully disappointing if Florian Zeller is not her best director for the father. We haven't seen the movie yet. Sony Pictures Classics is putting the movie out, meaning they wait to the last possible moment to show it to you, so that we don't get to see that till the end of this month. But you know, like Shaka King for best director, I don't think that's happening for Judas. Um, Spike has been missing just as many noms as he's gotten for Defy Blood, so I doubt it, you know. Um, and then there's other stuff like other like stuff we consider like a best picture, you know, safe bet, like George C. Wolf or Ma Rainey. And even Regina King for One Night in Miami, because those movies are stage adaptations and not the most cinematic stuff, I think that hurts the director case. Yeah. You know, Darius they, Martyr, I, I don't know if he's a big enough name, Sound of Metal's director. I, I don't think this is something that they would take into account, but it would be pretty disheartening if we have maybe three of the best movies this year directed by black directors all miss and there's no black directors nominated you know spike lee regina king and uh shaka king uh, i think right. are all deserving of that fifth spot probably not going to get it pretty disappointing to me yeah that's saying there's actually a lot of, a lot a lot of like really good choices and then even someone who we don't think has any chance at all is like paul greengrass who's mm-hmm. been nominated in the past yep i mean ron howard hillbilly elegy uh, <laughs> here we are talking about it again so um Best actress, Dave. Let's let's do that. Uh, I mean, Mulligan, Davis, McDormand, Andre Day, Vanessa Kirby. Yeah, well, well, that's the thing. Uh, Davis, McDormand, and Kirby, and Mulligan have been nominated by SAG critics and Globes. Mulligan won the Critics' Choice, which was interesting. Andre Day won for the Golden Globes. So is Andre Day like the safe pick for the fifth spot? We talked about that fifth spot before. Because of the late uh, breaking nature of it, she was not picked at SAG. So who knows? It's like we need like more information, right? And the other Globe winner was Rosamund Pike, which we don't expect that to continue. So this might this might end up being pretty cut and dry with the four we've talked about plus Andre Day. Amy Adams, surprisingly, did get a SAG nomination in Andre Day's place. But I don't know. Like that, That'd be something if, if they ended up picking Amy Adams, just because it's for this movie. Yeah. Any yeah. any uh, shot for Zendaya, you think? Don't think so. Like I said, just yeah. critics' choice to this point. Should note, we're doing this right before the uh, BAFTA nominations get announced, which is a little more information, as well as the DGAs. So, um more predicting information coming shortly but yeah i think um it's really like we have these six names at this point we'll see and as we move on to best actor um i think the the nomination field is a little bit less predictable than best actors but i feel like i feel like we already know who's going to win this category as we go in you know we have chadwick boseman who is almost a certain lock to be nominated and I would say probably win for his role in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Won twice already. 
And from there, the short list for the other nominations feels like, you know, Anthony Hopkins, Riz Ahmed, Gary Oldman, Stephen Young, maybe Delroy Lindo, uh, you know, Kingsley Benadier, maybe. No, that's the thing. Kingsley Benadier is no, no, none of the major nominations. So I don't know how you could pick it. I would love um, him to get it, though. <laughs> so Chadwick, Hopkins, Riz, and Oldman have gotten SAG critics and Globe nominations at this point. Stephen Young got SAG and Critics Choice, didn't get Globes. Remember, Minari kind of put off to the side by the Globes, so asterisk there. But Delroy, the Delroy Lindo case, we talked about it. We thought it was like really, really safe, but he's really fallen off off the race, unfortunately, with only getting a Critics nomination. Um, Tom Hanks, Ben Affleck, same thing. Tahar Rahim got the Globe nomination. Again, not something I expect to keep going. So... It feels like Stephen Young got in, and I, I, th- I think I think it's safe at this point. I hope so. Uh, definitely deserving. Check out our Minari review. Um, all right, we're into two more categories: Best Supporting Actress. Dave, Olivia Coleman for The Father is the favorite. Yep. Um, you know, I, I think Amanda Seyfried feels pretty safe. Yep. Yu Jung Young from Minari. I yep. think is a, a pretty good bet. Is Glenn Close really going to get in this from Hillbillyology though? I think so because oh, she got no. SAG critics and Globe nominations at this point. And again, we'll see what happens in a day with the BAFTAs, but it feels kind of safe, you know. People, oh no, but like it's annoying to me because like she's not going to win. Yeah. So why would we do it in this? Yeah, uh, you don't. You don't have to give her. It's much. weird too because Safri did not get nominated by SAG, which really surprised me. Uh, that's the actors deciding too, you know. Um, they picked uh, Maria Bakalova instead, and she also won the Critics' Choice nomination and did not get nominated by Globe. So this one's kind of all up in the air. And of course, Jodie Foster won the other one at right. the Globes. So, uh, and Helena Zengel from News of the World has been nominated twice to this point, and Ellen Burstyn got a Critics' Choice Award nomination. So this one's kind of up in the air. Definitely hard. Definitely no way of saying who's going to win. We definitely don't know that. So if there's going to be a surprise, which I doubt there is, I could see Saoirse Ronan for Ammonite being nominated only because she is like that Oscar darling, you know, she's just nominated every time she's up. But uh, I don't know if the the Glenn Close of this is just putting a bad taste in my mouth. I'm thinking about her with those bug eyes and those Coke Coke bottle glasses. And I mean, I'd say I like Glenn Close better than Amy Adams in Hellbellyology. Like if I have to pick one, I'd pick that one. So. And as far as Ammonite goes, I yeah, <laughs> you don't yeah, have to we, pick one. You're right, we don't, we don't. As far as Ammonite goes, I did finally check that out, and it's like someone tried to make Portrait of Lady on Fire, but just did not have like the chemistry angle to it. So the movie is is quite flat. So I don't know if anyone's like chopping at the bit to nominate Sersha, given how many nominations she has at such a young age. Um, yeah, but also like Helena Zengel, like it's good, but she's like 12. Do we have to nominate a 12 year old? Like, give her, like, the Rising Star nomination stuff. Isn't that good enough? Uh, well, if the performance deserves it, I guess. I don't well, do know. you think that's, like, a, like a really, like, like amazing performance for this kind of award? Because she's barely speaking words half the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I did think she was pretty good in the movie. I don't, I don't know if I, if I would put her above any of the top seven people we named right. but i just i just a little worried about amanda safety missing which i think would be a big mistake that's all yeah i i, I mean i i hope she makes it too loved her in in mank 
But last one, Dave. Best supporting actor. Daniel Kaluuya seems pretty safe. Yeah, two wins Golden already. Globe. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen seems yep. pretty safe. For From Chicago there. 7, not Borat, which was the lead. From there, I think it's maybe a little more open. Um, Leslie Odom Jr. for One, one Night in Miami. Uh, Paul Racy for Sound of Metal, which would be yep. awesome if you got the nom. Chadwick Boseman for the Five Bloods up there. Mark mm-hmm. Rylance, Trial of Chicago 7, seems like he might get up there. Jared Leto. Yes. Jared Leto, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Who else is in this list? Also, I, I would also know Bill Murray, who was nominated by Critics and Globes. And Leto, like, yeah, it's not just the Globes. He also got a SAG nomination. So it's like it's quite plausible that Jared Leto is nominated for Best Supporting Actor for The Little Things, which would be insane. Um, The Chadwick Boseman double nom, getting the nom for Defy Bloods. That'd be interesting because I don't think that's a lock, but he's gotten some noms for that so far. So this one's a little hard to pin down. Um, It feels like the momentum is strictly behind Kaluuya winning it at this point. But, you know, there's a handful of names. And like you said, Chicago 7, there's there's a few other guys that could make in probably Rylands uh, would be the other one to sneak in there. Um, but like Paul Racy for Sound of Metal, it feels like that's kind of sputtered out after the early critics stuff and he hasn't really kept that going, but we'll see. Would love it if, if he got the nom, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it, it really just feels like Puglia's category. So any other uh, categories you want to give quick predictions? I mean, it, it's kind of a little hard to pick the screenplays right now, but I mean, we do have the writer's skill nominations. Like I said, it is kind of notable to me that Mank, Defy Bloods, Minari, and Nomadland, none of those movies got original or adapted screenplay nominations, despite we all think they're very safe best picture nominations. So I think that that's interesting just because predicting best picture might be a little more challenging this year. That's one of the things we would use, right? Um, Judas did get a writer's guild nomination, which is a great sign. Um, yeah, in terms of other things I'm looking for, like best animated feature, we expect Soul to win. We expect Wolf Walkers and Onward to also be there. What other two animated films do they pick? I don't know. Um, like score, we expect Soul to win. Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, what other scores do they pick? Not really sure at the moment. Stuff like that. Yeah. It'll be interesting. And we'll be talking about anything notable next week so stay tuned for that and dave what else should the people be staying tuned for well speaking of predictions we'll be doing our grammy predictions the awards are right around the corner and we also haven't really chimed in on the uh snafu that was the actual grammy nominations uh so we had talked about that (laughs) yeah so plenty to chew on there also tom holland's uh film from the russo brothers their avengers endgame follow-up on apple tv plus cherry is out uh so so reception but i want to see tom holland being serious um music wise you got nick jonas dude you excited nick jonas solo album yeah uh (laughs) love bug just every song love bug over and over also selena gomez dropping a spanish language uh ep as well as Rose from Blackpink dropping her first uh, solo EP. Okay. So a few things there, not as much as this week at the moment, but we we can always find stuff. So that's why you stay tuned. Hit that subscribe on SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod, as well as YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. At Dave Martinson on TikTok and Twitter is Martin Swagger. Uh, we'll see you all next week.
What up, guys? Welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. I'm Dave Martinson. Usually I'm here with my co host, Pat Sheehan. But like the Grammys, uh, we forgot it was happening this week and forgot to do our predictions as a result. So I'm here solo, just going to whip up some quick thoughts before the ceremony tonight. And we'll talk about what happens tomorrow, normally on the pod. Uh, so make sure you subscribe at youtube.com slash nostalgia pod or wherever you get your podcasts so you get those thoughts when they come out. But yeah, uh, we talked about our predictions for the nominations a few months back and haven't touched on that since. Obviously, the weekend not being nominated at all was the source of a lot of controversy, rightfully. The fact that After Hours and Blinding Lights as a single were not nominated in those big categories. And it's not that they have to win, but like to not be recognized, critically acclaimed albums that are also album songs that are also super popular, just really strange and brings up the corruption charges that The Weeknd himself was certainly at the front of uh, making, you know, well-known and just the whole shadiness of the weekend performing at the Super Bowl and then not being nominated uh, definitely leaves a foul taste in the mouth. And, you know, the weekend saying he's not going to submit his music to future Grammys is, is a big blow to the Grammys legitimacy because many stars do not care about the ceremony and the award award show. And that lack of credibility maintains the status as the Grammys is the biggest joke of the big award shows when it comes to the art stuff. And, you know, I just think of like Frank Ocean, not even caring to submit his music before. And I have the weekend, someone who's even more popular and mainstream feeling this way. It's not a good sign, but either way, the nominations we got reflect September 1st, 2019 to August 31st, 2020, as everyone knows. And let's go right into Album of the Year was going to hit the highlights, the big categories for the most part. I think with Album of the Year, this the whole thought really is going to be about if Taylor Swift gets that third Album of the Year win. If she did, she'd tie the record set by Frank Sinatra, Stevie Wonder, and Paul Simon. Uh, remember, of course, Lover, the last time her al- an album was a- a- eligible, was not nominated. And that was a big blow to uh, Taylor, you have to imagine. But she's back here at Folklore. And I think really the contest is Folklore from Taylor versus Future Nostalgia by Dua Lipa. And I think that's going to be a big, you know, a big point of contention because I think both Taylor and Dua uh, are going to have good nights. It's really a question of who has the bigger night. And, you know, along those lines uh, with Album of the Year going off to Song of the Year, same kind of thing where you have and you know, song of the year record of the year do the leap don't start now is nominated in both those fields taylor was only nominated in one with cardigan even though she submitted to both and i think that could be an early tell that maybe things are going to lean uh duo's way uh and you know it remains to be seen obviously it's tough to be too predictive and you know there's, there's lots of history we can a lot of uh, look back on but i don't know how relevant it is these days but i think dua versus taylor that's kind of the thing to be watching um you know dark horses along those lines uh tough to call beyonce a dark horse but black parade is um, uh, nominated for record of the year and song of the year as well beyonce's coming up on 
uh, records, various records about total Grammys won. So we know <laughs> she's certainly still a Grammys darling. So it remains to be seen uh, what kind of night Beyonce has. I think in terms of like the R&B stuff, she's set up against Chloe and Haley uh, with with those. And then if you think about like progressive R&B field, it's actually Chloe and Haley versus Janae Aiko. Janae Aiko, of course, was also nominated for Album of the Year, a little surprisingly, I guess. So that's how I think that would go. Um, uh, just keeping it moving here, you know, the rap stuff, I think the most exciting stuff about the, the rap nominations is uh, Pop Smoke's Dior is in fact nominated for rap performance, notably Dior originally came out in July 2019, meaning it wouldn't be eligible. I don't think anyone really cares. Obviously, we'd love to see Pop Smoke win as, you know, one and only Grammy. It's the only thing he's nominated for here. Um, but he is going up against Megan Stallion and Beyonce for the Savage remix, a song that's also nominated for Song of the Year. So it's tough to pick against, you know, songs or albums that are nominated in like the bigger categories, of course. Then again, I think if there's any precedence for like, you know, spreading the wealth and diversifying anything. Do remember that bad guy from Billie Eilish last year, which won a lot as Billie had a huge night. Bad guy did end up losing to Truth Hurts in, uh, I think that was a pop vocal. And uh, so it is so it is possible anyway. Um, you know, rap song, melodic rap. Feels like Roddy Rich. I mean, Roddy Rich is nominated twice in melodic rap the box and rock start maybe there's votes splitting tough to say but uh yeah it feels like roddy's gonna have the huge night there and then rap song i know some people are really pulling for little baby with the bigger picture but again you're, you're up against Megan the stallion and beyonce again with savagery makes tough to pick against something nominated for song of the year and then rap album there's been a lot of criticism as it's like it's the old heads nomination lots of you know rapidy rap technical ability people not no melody, no no melody to be seen right uh, Nas, D Smoke, Royce to Five Nine, J Electronica, and uh, Freddie Gibbs. Of course, it feels like it's Nas versus Freddie Gibbs. The people's champ is Freddie, but I'm not gonna be too mad when Nas wins. It feels like that's where it's going. Nas is 0 for 15 to this point at the Grammys, so I don't think anyone should be too mad. And it's a good record. I think the only thing that would really make me mad would be D Smoke, just because like no one's enthusiastic about him, and like you know winning the Netflix show. It feels like that's a little politicking. Uh, to me, anyway, kind of a strange choice. The rest of them are fine. Uh, you know, I mean, rock, rock song, rock performance, alternative music album. That's where Fiona Apple is. It's weird that she was not nominated for album of the year for Vegetable Cutters, considering you have Jacob Collier and Black Pumas in album of the year. Like, if you're going to pick a less mainstream, less, you know, voluminous listen to stuff, Fiona seemed like the choice, the most critically acclaimed thing there. Again, like Black Pumas, you have the deluxe album and album of the year, even though the original version of that album came out in the previous Grammy cycle. I kind of hate the timing of that. It feels like you shouldn't be able to submit a deluxe album a second time. Like Megan Thee Stallion is nominated for Best New Artist. This was the third time she was submitted for that of the three possible chances you get. Why do you get three chances for Best New Artist? You clearly are not new anymore. Anyway, uh, Fiona Apple versus Phoebe Bridgers. That's kind of like the rock, you know, head to head there. We'll see what happens. Uh, probably going to lean towards Fiona there, but you know, wouldn't be surprised. But I feel like it's between those two. Um, and yeah, just moving on. Uh, 
pop duo and group performance. Of course, that's where BTS is nominated for Dynamite. A lot of people were hoping Dynamite could also move up into record or song of the year as well. It didn't happen, unfortunately, despite uh, being very deserving. I don't think BTS has much of a chance here, unfortunately, just because of like the juice they're going up against with Rain On Me, Aryan, Lady Gaga, and of course also you have Exile, Taylor, and Bonnie Vare, depending on what night Taylor has and if Do is doing well, maybe that's where Taylor gets awarded as well to make up for a lot of duo wins in face of Taylor. So it kind of sucks that like because like BTS and even Bad Bunny and J Balvin are just kind of being relegated to this category and then like, you know, J Balvin, Bunny, Bunny's case, the uh, Latin categories as well. Kind of like a happy to be here thing. Doesn't really feel like it's going to happen, which which sucks, but at least we're getting there in terms of the nominations happening. Um, still don't know why Justin Bieber and Quavo are nominating this category. It's not a good song. Uh, yeah, so, and Best New Artist, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's probably Megan Thee Stallion, given that the other big nom she had, but I suppose you could see Phoebe Bridgers. Kay Trinata, again, a weird choice for Best New Artist, considering he's been making music for 10 years uh, and well-known and leading festivals and all that, not to mention him and Phoebe are both nominated off their second studio albums on major labels or, uh, you know, not independent labels anyway. Like it's really, really strange again, like where the Grammys do and don't set their rules up. But yeah, I mean, if Meg- Megan's nominated for song of the year, how can she not win best new artist? You know, <laughs> some of this stuff feels awfully boring just because a lot of it feels kind of predictable. Um, yeah. And you know, I don't know, like it, it's the Grammys, man. Like no one really cares all that much. And history is cool, I guess. But you know, when categories change all the time and eligibility moves up and down, I think the thing the Grammys need to f- focus on is getting their stars to care again. And plenty of them still do. You know, Taylor Swift is happy to be nominated again. And, you know, not and Dua Lipa certainly an ascendant new superstar. She's, you know, it's not that it's it's all bad, but there's just so much more work to be done in terms of transparency and uh, just, you know, credibility. And, you know, this talk about what happened with the Golden Globes recently uh, leaves sour taste in people's mouth and the Grammys, a lot of those same corruption charges are awfully familiar. So we hope we can uh, move forward with that, I guess, just because this is the biggest night for the music industry. Even if people really only care about the performances, less about who wins, whatever. But let's, let's hope it's not all bad, right? Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about who wins next week. So subscribe at YouTube.com slash Nostalgia Pod and don't miss that.